You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here on the Westwood One Podcast Network at CRTV. It is May 4th, but we are already in the Stinko de Mayo spirit here celebrating. I am actually in a good mood despite suffering from the worst cold I've had in three years. Uh, I sound somewhat of a hybrid between a smoker and a guy who got a sex change operation. So you got to bear with me today, but it is foreign policy Friday and we will have a co-host. So you won't have to hear me the entire time. Um, Like I said, I'm in a really good mood today because I spent all night working on fixing a toilet and I actually succeeded. And I figured my day job is kind of like working in a toilet all day. So I may as well actually do it and feel accomplished. Um, which is something I guess a lot of a lot of my colleagues in this business don't want to actually accomplish anything. They just want to promote themselves. And that's why, as long as I'm behind this microphone, as long as we have this platform here, we're going to continue speaking the truth. You know, when I lost my voice this week, I really got to contemplating how uh, speech is such a gift from God. I, I rely on it so much. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, what, what am I going to do? I had to cancel a lot of <clears throat> media appearances on Thursday and you know, I just recommitted to myself. I'm going to commit to using my voice box for speaking the truth and giving over information you guys want to hear. And um, there is so much going on next week's going to be even bigger with a big primary election, a number of States Tuesday night. We'll cover it here. Conservative review. Um, Congress is back in town and there's going to be a lot more to watch for, but for today, yes, indeed. Foreign policy Friday with Jordan Schachtel has become a thing. Alrighty, Jordan. Um, despite all the talk about Stormy Daniels and all the related stuff, you wouldn't know it, but this was a huge foreign policy week. Big week, indeed. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, it goes to show if you don't have, if you don't put Stormy Daniels in your in your titles that, uh, you know, a lot of people miss this kind of stuff. So we're thinking about it over at PR, you know, just inserting it into every single title um, somewhere in the middle. You know, and Jordan, I'm not sure, obviously, if we're going to have the time every Friday to put this out. We got a lot of good feedback from the last show we did, but I really want to do this more often. And because I, I was thinking foreign policy is really not foreign. And, and, and that's, I think, our goal is to teach people that if you had to look at a scale of one to 100 and number each one in terms of its priority, of different things going on in different theaters of the world, what's important to us? What's number 100? The government will prioritize as number one. What's 99 to, and, and, and so on and so forth, and everything is backwards. And how if you really had a proper foreign policy, you'd recognize that it starts with homeland security. It starts with what ultimately threatens our homeland. And I think you got to work backwards. It's either a military of a foreign power, it's an ICBM, nuclear or conventional, of a foreign power, or through incursions in our border and our back door, and then just directly at our ports of entry and our front door that we let problems in. That is our foreign policy. 
everything should be oriented, all of our statecraft, all of our um, military resources should be oriented towards neutralizing those threats and only those threats, and then going after the money, going after the funding, using soft power. And you got to first identify a threat. So I want to divide today's show into first the ICBM threat, which is North Korea. They have the ability to hit us. They have the desire to hit us. So that's important. And then go on to Iran, obviously Netanyahu's presentation, what that means. And then the most important threat of Iran, which is Hezbollah, not just in Lebanon, but in our own backyard in the Western Hemisphere, and how that ties into immigration, the drug crisis, and the drug cartels in Mexico. So tall order for today. Let's start with North Korea. So yeah, for, go ahead. What what's go, what is going on? What is going on there? We hear a lot of positive news seemingly out of nowhere. He's meeting with uh, Kim Jong Un is meeting with the South Korean president. They say they want to denuclearize the peninsula. Is this too good to be true? What's going? What are you seeing? So the the latest today is that President Trump apparently has agreed to a date and a location for the meeting with Kim Jong-un. So they've obviously done a lot of background discussions that we aren't uh, privy to. And, um, you know, you saw this in, I think, the uh, the moving of these three Americans imprisoned in a North Korean gulag. They've been moved to Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, where they don't really you know, it's their showy capital where they bring the tourists and they don't really let them venture out. So this, it makes it seem like at least that the North Koreans are either trying to make a goodwill gesture or we gave gave them something in return and that these, President Trump tweeted about these three um, individuals, these uh, Korean Americans who it looks like they're set to be freed, but, you know, what are we, the question is always, what are we going to give them in exchange or what did we do to get to this point? Um, but it looks like talks are indeed, you know, very serious. They're going to happen. President Trump is definitely going to meet with Kim Jong-un very soon. And um, North Korea has presented itself as a legitimate nuclear threat. So they, of course, have leverage as well. And we're going to try to, um, you know, the goal ultimately is to denuclearize. Um, the question is whether is that really a realistic goal right now? Um is North Korea going to give up its ultimate leverage point? That remains to be seen. Why? Why would they be doing this? I mean, they were being as belligerent as ever, firing missiles over Japan towards Guam a couple months ago. Um, we warned at the time, we said that posture change, change of posture is everything. If you make it clear to North Korea, you will not pay the ransom, we'll break you, we'll push regime change. And I listed a kind of seven ideas of what to do at the time. You wrote about this as well. And Trump didn't even do all of them, but some of them he did do. Looked like he was going to be uh, put more assets in the field there. Looked like he would be more open to regime change. He made fun out of Kim Jong-un. Publicly, at least, he did not give in to any ransom. And the, lo and behold, he all of a sudden starts saying, hey, I'll talk. Do, is not firing any missiles. Let's go the prisoners. In the past... This has all come because we paid some sort of ransom, and I would have roundly condemned this and opposed it and said it's all a show. But be because I'm going to trash the administration and government broadly in every other theater, I want to be positive here. Isn't this good news? I mean, doesn't this show peace through strength, or am I being too uh, premature? So far, it's definitely good news. You know, we don't have reason to believe that it's not good news. We can only judge the news um, 
angles for what we know so far and what we know so far has been all positive um the past tells us that north korea is not an honest broker um at least with past administrations they've reneged on agreements that they've signed on to so it really you really need tough verification mechanisms when it comes to north korea we've had two inter-korea summits between north and south korea um that looked great you know, the first in 2000, the second in 2007, um, and then they just totally collapsed. The North Korea got back to firing these advanced ICBMs. Now North Korea has ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile technology, that can hit basically anywhere in the United States, right? So the past, what we're doing in the past hasn't been working. Peace through strength, it looks like it has been working. It looks like that the Kim regime has been presented a threat that they can't and ignore any longer, and they're going to see what they can do, perhaps to let's say buy time to make the regime last a little bit longer or try to empower the regime. But we also know that that's their fundamental interest. So, what can we do to mitigate the threat posed by the regime, um, and not necessarily have to push regime change entirely? But of course, the interest is to protect the threat to Americans. And ideally, we can do something to put a check on that nuclear weapons program that threatens us all today. You know, looking at North Korea, I'm reminded of the most important thing is to actually understand the threat doctrine of your enemy. Um, and and th that's how you know which stool, tool of statecraft do you need to break out. And it's something we're usually pretty bad at. Um, you know, it's like last night, all I had to do was get this three-inch nut off the bottom of the toilet. Um, not not the bowl, but the, the tank. So I could change the refill system. And I couldn't do it. It was late at night. Home Depot was closed. So I went to a, a faraway one that was an, you know, it was an hour away. And the guy just gives me stupid advice, which I can't... This is why I like Lowe's better. And I'm not advertising for them, but whatever. They, they don't know what they're talking about there. And I was half asleep, so I listened. And I got the wrong wrench. I was like, what the heck? And then they were closed already. And I was so ticked off. I mean, here I am with my hands in the toilet and my nose dripping like who knows what. It's not pouring out. Um, I know, Jordan, you, you don't want to hear about that. But, you know, and then I, I woke up at 5.30 in the morning so I could get to Home Depot the minute actually Lowe's, the minute they opened up, and I got this beautiful three-inch, perfectly shaped, massively wide wrench. And it like, the 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 feeling of euphoria when it finally <laughs> twisted it was I, I felt so accomplished by 6.20 in the morning, and I got the toilet working before the kids woke up, and that's why I've been in a good mood ever since. And I was thinking like, that's, you need the right tools. It, it, it you know, Sometimes if you don't have the right tool, you could sit and, and, and pull at that thing your entire life. You're not going to get it. And to me is what's the threat doctrine? And I think this is a good segue into Iran because both Iran and, and, and uh, North Korea pose the threat that they're developing or have developed missiles that can reach us and they want to reach us. But there's one very big difference. North Korea wants their 72 virgins in this world. Um. Iran, quite the contrary, they want to bring the 12th Imam, the Mahdi, um, they want to bring about this messianic vision, and they want to bring the world to an end, and they want their 72 versions in the next world, which is why Iran would be 
72 times more dangerous were they to get the the weapons North Korea has at this stage. But North Korea, it was always a case where we would give them $2 billion as ransom. So then they would throw some crumbs, let a guy out of prison, uh, come to the table, and then keep doing their stuff. And, and then we, you know, rinse and repeat, we keep paying the the ransom. Trump seems to have recognized that they want their 72 virgins. They want their Chivas Regal. They love, they're Marxists. They love this world. They love um, the military leadership does not want to be overthrown. They don't want to die. They want to keep it going. And I think Kim Jong re- recognized that he stepped up the belligerence to the highest level he could do it. If he would have gone any further to Guam, I think he sensed there would have been a reaction and he didn't want to face it. I'm hoping that's the case, and I'm hoping there was no underhanded ransom that prompt this. Because to me, doesn't that make the whole difference between whether this is peace through through strength or more of the same? Yeah, absolutely. And if if we're going to pivot to Iran, um, there's some key differences between what's going on with North Korea and what's going on with Iran. Not just the ideology, but, you know, the leverage point here is that there's no indication that the Kim Jong-un regime is is at all threatened by overthrow internally or that, you know, they've already they've already mastered North Koreans have already mastered developing nuclear weapons. There's nothing we can do at this point um, to remove the, the knowledge that they've already obtained unless, you know, we're talking a massive military operation or something like that. So North Korea presents a lot more fundamental negotiating problems. But the Iranian regime has some several key weaknesses. Um, First and foremost, they haven't mastered developing nuclear weapons from what we know. Um, They're trying to. I wouldn't at all be surprised that they're spinning centrifuges at undisclosed sites, you know, deep in uh, 200 feet underground somewhere or in several locations. And that also you were talking about, um, they want the afterlife and it's, it's a radical fundamentalist regime um, and the people in Iran don't necessarily support the ideology that's being promulgated by the clerics. Um, and you see that throughout the entire nation every single day in Iran. Thousands of people are coming out to the streets defying yeah. the clerical regime. They don't necessarily, the majority of Iranians definitely don't support that. Um, so when it comes to, especially this May 12th deadline next week, um, we can look at a lot of things and know that time isn't necessarily on the side of the Iranian regime. All of these um, incredibly cowardly Obama administration people that say, oh, you need to keep the Iran deal in check because it's going to stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Um, we don't need the Iran deal to stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons. We can present an obvious kinetic threat to them. I'm not going around saying, oh, we need to blow up their nuclear sites the, the second the Iran deal ends. But President Trump can present the threat and say, you know, if you if you dare develop these nuclear weapons, we're watching and it's not going to happen. Right. So we're in a great position of strength when it comes to Iran. Some people might not recognize it, but I think it's certainly the case. It's interesting when you compare it, because like you said, North Korea already has it and they have the the um, delivery mechanism. They could definitely hit our West Coast. They could hit us. Um, and still, the peace through strength worked, certainly with Iran, where they're not quite there yet. Um, 
Now, they're not as starving as North Korea for, for legitimacy and resources, but you know, without their ability to export uh, their energy stuff, which is really the, the subject of the May 12th deadline with the sanctions, um, they'd be nothing but a, but a garbage hole. And uh, yeah, we got a lot of leverage over them. So to continue this, obviously big news, and it seems like it was a month ago because it was Monday and so much has happened that's unimportant that has been made important in our circles since then. But there was a pretty dramatic presentation where the head of Israel gets up with like a PowerPoint and all of a sudden disclosed that the Mossad somehow got into Iran, not some obscure place in the mountains in the Northwest, but in Tehran in government facilities and took out a hundred thousand documents, all gigabytes upon gigabytes of, of data about their history of their nuclear program and revealed that they absolutely had a clandestine program and there, and there's no evidence they stopped it. What was your big takeaway from the revelation and its consequences and why the Kerry crowd saying nothing new, why they're wrong? Because the revelation on project Ahmad, which is what the Iranians originally called their um, covert nuclear weapons program was that they were, as you said, they were definitely trying to build deliverable nuclear weapons, without a doubt, no questions, not even a hint of, you know, being on the fence about it. The Iranians were committed and still are committed to developing a nuclear weapon. This wasn't in the run-up to the Iran deal. And and I think it's important to note that I'm not necessarily sold that the Iran deal was purposed with stopping Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Those were the talking points, but I think you and I have a very different um, perspective on that. And a lot of conservatives... And we're going to cut into that, that later. Yeah. Believe, ...believe that it was more of a fundamental reshaping of Middle Eastern alliances yes. and a rebalancing. But putting that aside for a second, he embarrassed the Obama administration and the Iranian regime who lied consistently about their nuclear weapons program and their ambitions. And Prime Minister Netanyahu basically tracked Iran's development of nuclear weapons from um, as far back as 1989, when uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini came into power, um, to today, where they've essentially changed the name of the program, kept all the same scientists and heads of the program in place, and they've been covertly developing the program ever since. And that's why you can't take the the Iranians' word at face value, and it shows that the Iran deal itself was um, put together under false pretenses. Yeah, but Mad Dog Mattis, I mean, no one's tougher than him. He said that the inspection regimes are robust and it's it's working. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a strange comment because we, in during the Trump administration and the IAEA and all of our partner nations to the JCPOA, the, which is the Iran deal, no one has ever sought to verify Iranian compliance with the Iran deal on the ground, even in the sites that we are supposedly allowed to go to, and we've never actually asked. So I don't know what makes General Mattis so confident. Of course, we have good satellite intelligence, but that doesn't make up for on-the-ground inspections whatsoever. I mean, look at the past failures of the U.S. intelligence community. Wow. Um, most of it has to do with the lack of human resources wow. uh, on the ground. 
That so. that is that's a brilliant point because everyone was focused on the revelation of what they discovered, what the Israelis discovered, and that's important. But I think you're you're alluded to alluding to something that just crossed my mind. Just the fact that Israel pulled off the mission to get this stuff, I think, is worthy news policy wise because. I think this has long been the criticism of the CIA and our intel has gone down the toilet over the last number of decades. Everything I think ever since the Church Commission and all that stuff clipping its wings. But the um, the Israelis they have the human intelligence. Isn't that isn't that the crux of what they do? Yeah, you can't you can't replace operators on the ground. It's just not possible to rely on images from space or. Even worse, um, intermediaries for information. The Israelis took the physical information right out of these depositories and um, classified protected areas, and you just you you can't replace operations like that. And we have not even gone to Iran to inspect their facilities. And there's just there's just no way you can verify compliance. There's there's absolutely no way unless you you give it a shot. Um, I don't know where Madison's confidence comes from, but it's it's uh, it's very it's very strange to put it lightly. Yeah, I was just thinking, just the infill exfil operation to get in there. I mean, the heart of government uh, buildings where they were archiving this and they kept it. Um, that in itself has to demonstrate to you that they have a lot of human resources on the ground. No. Yeah, I don't want to speculate too much, but it, it's you know, with the Iranian regime at the point where it's at today, where it doesn't have much support. I think there's a lot of people inside the regime that would more, be more than willing to do things to hurt the regime. And of course, the Israeli operation really embarrasses um, the Iranians. That I think that was the, the real coup here was the, for information was that they, they went into Tehran. The Iranians, by the way, haven't even um, rejected these claims. They say the information means nothing, but the Iranians haven't come out and said the Israelis didn't take our information. So it, more than anything, it humiliated the regime. So I think that was its primary purpose. And of course, getting fundamental objective proof of the Iranian nuclear weapons program was just a bonus. You know, to me, one of the big things, the big takeaways is that it validates our main argument. Well, what was our, our, our main argument against the whole nuclear deal, which, as you noted, wasn't uh, an appeasement. It was an alliance that Obama created, and we're going to talk about that later, that it was an alliance in, in all of the various theaters in the, in the world, including in our own backyard in Latin America and with the Mexican drug cartels and Hezbollah. But, you know, it wasn't a matter of are they going to cheat. It was a matter of the deal itself. They could follow it to the letter of the law, and it ensures – that they developed nuclear weapons. Because our contention was always that we knew from the facilities of Parchin and Fardo, the things they built into the mountains through their military installations, that that is where they always had a clandestine program, and there was never any evidence or any rationale why they would stop it. And then we come along with a deal where we don't address even the known military facilities, much less the likelihood that there's plenty of things we don't know and they would have to disclose and come, you know, show evidence uh, in order to get all the billions of dollars. No, but even in the, you know, the known mil uh, um, sites, 
they were allowed to keep 6,000 centrifuges, all the existing infrastructure. They're allowed to develop more sophisticated centrifuges that they had than they have now. All the infrastructure they're allowed to have, and our contention was it was the perfect storm because basically they're allowed to keep the infrastructure open, the clandestine development of the material is never subject to inspection. And then even even the open stuff has a sunset. When's the sun, sunset? 2025? Yeah, 2025. 2025. I mean, we're, we're rapidly approaching that. Our point was they, even openly, they needed five to 10 years anyway to develop it eating, even clandestinely. So they weren't seeding anything. It was like a perfect deal. Okay, I get hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10 years. I can't break out in a year anyway. So I may as well keep the infrastructure public. I won't develop anything public. I'll keep doing the clandestine program. Use the hundreds of billions of dollars to ensure that indeed we succeed in the program while also funding Hezbollah and all the other things everywhere else. Openly do their – and they're doing this right away. We see this. Their ICBM um, program to hit America and then boom, come out 2025 publicly. Hey, buddies, here's our program. Lump, put it right on the ICBMs we developed. Put it on the centrifuges that we were they were allowed to develop. And all the while, they would have never violated the terms of the agreement. And now that's been verified by this Project Ahmad. Yep. And now that you know, the sunset provision is only, what, six and a half years away now. So it was intended to basically allow the Iranians because supposedly we were going to reform them into a U.S. ally in 10 years, which is an incredibly short amount of time to turn, you know, a hell-bent clerical regime into something else. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the Iran in 2025, as the deal is currently constructed, can flip the switch and have nuclear weapons. And that's just unacceptable at this point. And that's why the, I don't understand the agreements. I, I think there's a lot of good faith people that are trying to reform the deal, you know, to appease the Germans, the Iranians, the French, the British. And <clears throat> I, I don't I don't think it's going to be satisfactory. I think that the, the best case scenario moving forward is you leave the deal. And it's not like we can't enter into negotiations about other things, too, with our European partners and with China and Russia. Um, we don't need to get the Iranians involved. And people, I think, at the, in this case, they're entirely overhyping the present our present leverage as i was talking about with regard to north korea we have tremendous tremendous leverage over iran right now and we can keep putting the foot on the gas pedal continue targeting that economy um their their currency they're in a full-blown currency crisis you know the people are out in the streets now is not the time to give in and you gotta hope that president trump will finally after pushing, kicking this can down the road for the past year, that May 12th will be the day where he finally says, enough is enough. Iran can talk all they want, but we're, but we're leaving the deal. And then send the, the follow-up message to Iran to, to basically you know, verify our, our commitment to peace through strength. The same message that he sent to North Korea says, basically, like, I have a bigger nuclear button or... Um, you're not even going to stand a chance against us, you know, make the threat very serious and have Iran really recognize that the 
regime is on the ropes and that the nuclear threat just isn't going to happen. And again, it all revolves around energy, and that's what you got to watch out with. And and you know, Congress is out to lunch. Um, even a guy like Mac Thornberry, who's the House Armed Services Committee chairman, was like, "Oh, don't pull out of the a deal." Oh, our words are our words, the word. Well, we already know they lied when they said they never developed, and that was the whole premise that they wouldn't orient themselves towards it when they already had it. And I'm sure Israel has evidence they're continuing it, but they don't want to show that in case they want to strike it. Um. But it's it's energy is everything. We're expected to surpass Qatar as the largest exporter. Forget about our own backyard. To export other people of liquefied natural gas by the mid-2020s. And the U.S. is already expected to export more natural gas um, and, 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 and then export more oil than Saudi Arabia within a few years. We could neutralize the whole Russia-Iran axis if we prevent Iran's exports. But I guess, you know, the Chamber of Commerce here at home and all the European economic interest, they're they're the aren't is it isn't that really the linchpin of what's driving this? Yeah, there are too many special interests in D.C. that don't see the long term picture and don't recognize the Iranian threat as legitimate. And it's very unfortunate that even some um, particular libertarian groups on the right um, would rather make big deals with segments of the Iranian regime at the expense of the United States. And it's totally unacceptable. I think you and I are, we're both for free markets. Um, and we're also though for national security. And of course the, the fundamental job of the government is to protect the American people. And if your business deal is going to empower a nuclear weapons, aspiring regime, um, the government has every right to step in and say, you know, hold on a second. You know, we're, we're imposing sanctions. This isn't going to happen. And, and, and again, I, I want to develop a thesis here, you know, as we go on, as we hold these shows, that foreign policy is a matter of identifying what is ultimately the biggest threat to our homeland. You know, obviously, you have, you have you know, foreign interests, you have economic interests. But number one is our homeland. And everything we should be doing, we don't do what's not a threat. We make a threat. What is a threat, we ignore. Um, and then the tools. What we can do with soft power, we don't do what we what we shouldn't be doing at all. We use hard power and kill, get our soldiers killed and spend trillions of dollars making things worse. Um, and part of what the Europeans are pushing is the exact opposite matrix in the establishment Republicans. The establishment political class globalist line here is stay in Iran deal, but then fight Iran by getting involved in Syria. That That's the Macron approach. That's what he's trying to get Trump sucked into. And we need to do the exact opposite. So we need to obviously abrogate the Iran deal, crush them with sanctions. Okay, let's move on to Syria. Um, I don't want to cover it as much as we did last week because I want to move on to other things. But just want to get your take on this. The State Department announced this w- this week um, that they're launching another uh, – they, or they have launched another offensive against ISIS in Syria. I'm reading a tweet from Thomas Jocelyn, very plugged in, very smart guy from <clears throat> the Long Wars Journal. <clears throat> After an interruption earlier this year when SDF forces, those are primarily primarily the Kurds, went to fight in Afrin and they're dealing with the Turks – the U.S.-led coalition announces a new offensive to clear ISIS from its final strongholds in Syria. However, ISIS wages guerrilla warfare in several areas of Syria, including against the Assad regime. 
So let's get this straight. Last week, we were saying we needed to be in there. Oh, because this is how to counter Iran and, uh, and Assad, his puppet. But then we're clearing out ISIS when the balance of powers tipped 95-5. I mean, I believe even when it was 50-50, we shouldn't have gotten involved. I believe ISIS was not our problem. It was an immigration problem that we needed to deal with. And that's an FBI problem, the homeland problem. Um, but nonetheless, we strengthened them. We cleared out Iraq for them, gave Iraq to the Shias, bail, bailed out our enemies in Baghdad. We bailed them out in Syria, you know, the beyond the Kurds. And then now, even with 5% remaining, you'd be like, all right, even if you believed in getting involved in the first place, you know, strategically, it's actually better to keep a little bit of the Sunni insurgency alive there to give Hezbollah and Iran and Assad a run for their money. We're fighting to why, why, what, what? It, it's so perplexing at this point that we need to hunt down every. The mission is to hunt down every single last member of ISIS, and this is what gets us sucked in. This is the same mission that got us into every single country in Africa and the Middle East fighting these wars. Is because you know the post nine eleven AUMF said. We have to basically take out everyone that had to do with the planning of 9-11, which would have been good, but it was too broadly defined. And then people started to take it as meaning all of al-Qaeda, anyone who associates with al-Qaeda. This brought us to Yemen. It brought us to <laughs> Somalia. It brought us to Nigeria. It brought us every, in every corner of the world. And then we you know, couldn't find allies everywhere, anywhere. So we were aligning with all these shoddy groups. And of course, now under ISIS, it brings us fun, more so to Syria, but we're also in Libya and we're everywhere in Africa again. Um, with regard to Syria, it's just, it, it, the war is never going to end if you're going to try to take out every single element of ISIS. You know, there's too many Sunnis in Syria that are, are going to get recruited potentially by ISIS or by another jihadi group. And the problem is that ultimately, you know, it shows that this isn't going to end with ISIS. Even if we completely obliterate ISIS as we obliterated al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, the next talking point, as you'll see from Lindsey Graham and other, you know, Republican and Democratic uh, establishment senators, is that, oh, they're on the move now. Now we got to go chase them down into another country. So this type of strategy, is, <laughs> it, it's never ending. And you pointing out that, you know, we're sending the Kurds and our air support in a mission to take out these last, um, it, it's only the beginning when they, when they're saying that, you know, we're, we're going to take out these last mud huts, uh, owned by ISIS because <laughs> there's always another country. There's always another town. There's always a revitalizing jihadi group somewhere. And it's just, it, it, it's a never ending cycle at this point. And it, it, we, we need to get away from it. And obviously, you know what I'm doing here, Jordan. I mean, I'm building up to the crescendo to talk about our project in Latin America, the Mexican drug cartels and Hezbollah. And, but I'm still, before we get to that, I just want to contrast again, what's not a threat and what is a threat, what we should prioritize when we shouldn't. And the big difference between the Sunni threat and the Iran Hezbollah threat is that it's infrastructure, it's statecraft, it's global network, and it's money, and it's geographical proximity and ability to hit us. That is where you have a threat. That's Iran Hezbollah, as we're going to talk about. But as it relates to all the Sunni type of people, especially when it's 
mainly about a tribal warfare that's very local in nature between Sunnis and Shias in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. There's nothing. There's nothing there. There's nothing to do. And, and you know, you know, I didn't have time, and I'm curious if you saw this. I wish I would have had time to go through it. But a, a federal district judge in New York issued a ruling for a bunch of a thousand 9/11 plaintiffs suing Iran is responsible for 9-11 and you know unfortunately you know there's no way to extract it from them but it was more of a symbolic ruling and i didn't get a chance to read the findings but you know a lot of our listeners might think well wait what do you mean iran 9-11 what huh and i was like bingo iran 9-11 was not about the sand dunes in the hindu kush in, in afghanistan it was about number one immigration sunnis only hurt they don't have a state from which to do anything to us I mean, there are some bad Sunni states, but they don't have ICBM. They don't have any ability to hurt us. Um, Iran and Hezbollah do and have and will, and and it's 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 an existential threat. But um, I it's about immigration, and number two, it's about the money. That's right. where you want to go after. So the money came from Saudi Arabia and Iran, and that's why it was enough that a district judge found. Like, yeah, they were responsible for not that. That was a very big um, development this week, of course, lost in the media. Yeah. So in the Abbottabad, in the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound, a lot of evidence was compiled that later found that Osama bin Laden had a very had very close ties to the Iranian regime. And a lot of people find this to be strange. But of course, you know, the number one enemy is the deviant Westerners. So Iran financed a lot of these efforts and a federal judge had enough information to to rule that this indeed was the case and that you know the the 911 plotters would never been able to come up with the funds and infrastructure to uh, conduct this attack without you know of course the the immigration issue is a big deal because they never should have been allowed in the country in the first place and it was a failure of national security too to not vet these people but of course they wouldn't have come up with the funds and the resources had it not been for their state sponsors and Iran, of course, is the number one state sponsor of terror in the world. And I think it's a good way to, um, to, to pivot to what's going on in the Western Hemisphere, particularly you know, what we've been talking about on the southern border, too, today. No, exactly. So that's, that's, the, that's the real issue, what I wanted to get to. It is extraordinary, extraordinary that I'm seeing all everyone. I mean, you go think tanks, talking rear ends, congressional hearings. Everything, everyone has what to say on Yemen, Somalia, Syria, Afghanistan. And by the way, in Afghanistan this week, uh, really, really sad. I mean, you know, again, we lost another soldier, uh, uh, Gabe Condi from Colorado. He was an infantryman um, killed Monday, 25 miles northeast of Kabul. So this is not, you know, some far flung place. And by the way, it's in a district that officially is listed as under government control. So that just shows you what control means. Um, officially, we're fighting ISIS in that particular theater, which is fighting the Taliban, but we're fighting the Taliban too, just like we're fighting the Houthis in Yemen, but we're also fighting Al-Qaeda in the two. And it makes no sense. And none of those theaters could hurt us. What can hurt us? So we're working on a project together because nobody wants to talk about this. Um, where the border, Iran, the Iran deal, Hezbollah, the drug crisis, killing over 100,000 people from illicit drugs since 
um, Obama suspended um, immigration enforcement and border control and, by the way, the Iran deal, which we're going to tie in in a minute. And we've known for several decades, but it's been pretty big the last decade, that Hezbollah has a major operation in the tri-state area of Argentina with Brazil and Paraguay, as well with the tri-state area of Argentina, Chile, and Bolivia, and then also in eastern Venezuela. Um, the you know so both the growing of the cocaine in the Andes and the shipping of it, they have comp- they, they literally have a state there. They're they're both in with the governments. They're in with the population because there's a major Lebanese diaspora that began in the 70s and 80s and intensified with the Lebanese civil war. There's about a million Lebanese Shias in Argentina, and some have spilled over in you know other countries. They have a presence in Central America, and they now have ties to the Los Zetas drug cartel, which we're going to talk about a little bit more detail, and. How do we how do we start this? So, Jordan, could you fill us in with this political article bombshell from a couple months ago of Operation Cassandra and how how that ties into the Iran deal? Yeah. So before right before we get to Operation Cassandra, if I don't know if any, a lot of people caught it this week, but DHS Secretary Nielsen said, you know, all these Middle Eastern people keep coming across the border and they're usually very short, concise statements without much context and it really you know has raised our suspicions you know how are these people getting to the country um but and and by the way just just so you know jordan just i didn't mean to cut you off there i know you're going to get to cassandra but that that that's a big a big point because again we talk about the sunnis most of the sunnis we let in is the front door that's just suicide that's our immigration policies but our border, it's it's killing us, it's killing us with drugs, it's killing us with illegal immigrants, the societal problems, the fiscal cost, the crime, the MS-13. But here's the tie-in, like you said. Mm-hmm. I've I've my listeners know this already, Jordan, from all my immigration and drug talk. There are four drug cartels that control the border. You could take it to the bank that you cannot cross that border without cooperation with the drug cartels. So when you have Middle Easterners coming in. You know there's a relationship with Hezbollah and some sort of drug cartel, which you're going to get to. So again, Operation Cassandra, what happened there? So Operation Cassandra was an initiative by several agencies of the federal government to track down and prosecute Hezbollah and Iranian Quds Force networks, um, both inside the United States and right outside on the southern border in Central America and South America. And what these initial findings found through the bombshell Politico article um, that we'll uh, link to in the show notes is that essentially they were running a hundreds of millions of dollars trafficking operation and doing it successfully without um, the U.S. had noticed. But what was happening, there weren't really many prosecutions of so this team of DEA agents and uh, several other agencies. We're about to crack down on these guys and um, you know, try to collapse the network. And the Obama administration basically called off the operation, according to the reporting, because they had to negotiate the Iran deal. And Hezbollah, as Iran's direct proxy, they take orders from the Iranian regime, um, was basically let loose to continue this narco-trafficking. And what we suspect now is 
a sophisticated human trafficking operation of Middle Easterners into Central America and into the United States. Because if you really narrow down the states that are um, able to pull off this operation, it really only comes back to Iran and its proxy in Hezbollah. Yep. And of course, we have um, we can talk about this in a bit, but we there have been past assassination plots um, coordinated with the cartels. And it just seems that all these connections are building up and we're trying to get the government to come clean about this and tell us on the record that this is indeed happening. But it seems that, and we've um, consulted with experts who I'm sure we'll be talking to and writing about soon, who seem to agree that the assessment is that Hezbollah is doing both, continuing both massive amounts of human trafficking and human smuggling. And the Iran deal has basically unleashed them and continued to finance these efforts, right, that directly affect the United States. The, the trail went cold around 2012. So you and I have been pouring through, and just so you guys know, we don't have any help. We're just doing this on, on our own time um, because no one else seems to care. 2012 is when we had several congressional hearings and pretty good experts brought in, gave riveting testimony. We've always known this, and I'm sure many of you guys already know this. Hezbollah has a, is a major threat in the Western Hemisphere. ISIS is crap. They, they, they mean nothing. Uh, you know, people in America that say, oh, I identify with ISIS. Yeah, because we shouldn't have let these idiots in, in in the first place. We let them in our front door. Um, that's suicidal. We need to stop doing that. Uh, there's no command and control ISIS, whatever. It's it, it's the Shias. It's Hezbollah funded directly by Iran and with IRGC and Quds Force operatives on the ground in the Western Hemisphere. We're going to talk about this. Um, they are poisoning us with drugs there now again the drug cartels in their own right are doing it even without them and i have said all along that if you believe we should have gotten involved in iraq syria afghanistan by a factor of ten thousand, we should have all military and statecraft and diplomatic relations oriented towards fighting the drug cartels and the illegal immigration problem just even without the hezbollah iran angle but certainly you put that on it and it is very dangerous. So the trail ran cold in 2012. Um, that was after um, reportedly the New York Times had the best expose on this. The IRGC working with Hezbollah and the Quds Force, which is their elite force directed by Soleimani, recruited Las Zetas um, traffickers, a drug cartel. That's the drug cartel in the cent- that controls the center part of the border with um, Texas around Laredo. Um, they are regarded as the most ruthless. They literally use Islamic terrorist tactics, and it's not a coincidence. They use their IEDs. I have been corresponding with this expert who gave a PowerPoint presentation on this at a conference one time that they're using the same IEDs that killed our soldiers in in uh, southern Iraq and the Shia areas during the Iraq war <coughs> showed up by Los Zetas they use against their um, enemies, their rival cartels, and just civilians in Mexico, which of course the media never talks about um, the death and mayhem at all, much less the connection with Hezbollah. They give them training, um, they give them weapons, they give them training and dig- digging tunnels, which is a concern under our border. And they recruited the Los Zetas to assassinate the Saudi ambassador to U- the U.S. in 2011 on our soil. 
it was only foiled because DEA had an informant who dressed up as a Lazetas guy. So the government clearly knew Lazetas had this connection. Um, and that this is going back, you know, that far. We've I, I've seen all this data, and then it went cold. So, Jordan, let me ask you a question. If the Obama administration shut off our counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism against Hezbollah in the Western Hemisphere, Cassandra, five years ago to jumpstart the Iran deal, and Iran got tens of billions of dollars from this, isn't it safe to say that that threat has gotten a lot worse? It has to have, because um, the Lebanese Hezbollah, the main headquarters of the Iran proxy, used to receive around $200 million a year in military funding. And we know that the Iran deal, due to the Iran deal, they're getting close to a billion. And that doesn't include, you know, the constant weapons shipments that the Israelis sometimes blow up on their way from Iran to Lebanon. But it shows that Hezbollah has a massive budget and they continue this huge revenue stream. And people forget about the assassination plot too often how real it was that when they, when they attempted when they used these uh, Los Zetas mercenaries to try to assassinate the ambassador and they also had additional plans in that story to assassinate an Israeli ambassador and, and ambassadors from other countries that um, opposed Iran that the money had already been wired by an Iranian uh, bank wow. to the Los Zetas officials so this plan was so was was real was so real that it was already a go when the DEA shut it down. So you can only imagine um, what has gone on in the past six years now. Um, and, and the problem, of course, you know, a lot of this has to do with our foreign relations with Mexico. Mexico doesn't yep. want to recognize that there's that our southern border, that they have no control over what's going on there because they have to negotiate with the cartels. And this is a hugely embarrassing issue to Mexico. So imagine already not wanting to recognize that you can't you can't you know guarantee the security of your citizens but also that these cartels are in bed with islamic terrorists funded by a fundamentalist regime no it, exactly and and it, it it's also the tail wagging the dog it's not just that iran gives money to hezbollah hezbollah is a tremendous people think they're a bunch of schleppers in the baka valley in lebanon and they rely on Iran to a certain extent, yeah, but people forget about Hezbollah in the Western Hemisphere. By some accounts, they make up to a billion dollars a year on. So, obviously, the cocaine trade—that's the huge thing. Their their relationship to FARC in Venezuela, um, <clears throat> where they basically run autonomously. They literally they have their biggest presence outside of the Becca Valley is in these areas. Um, I cannot understate that that is a fact. I mean, that that we know already. That's been known since since the 80s, 90s. Um, that's been a long-term problem. But um, again, it's this is the money. You want to disrupt terrorism. Their their thing is contraband. They're, any form of contraband. I'm seeing uh, counterfeit uh, Viagra pills, um, used cars, you name it. Contraband's their thing. That's their expertise because they have such a global network. So my understanding is this, that it's a symbiotic relationship. It started off in South America, not in Central America and Mexico, where basically they wanted to have – it was mainly economic, but you could imagine they want jihad centers. Um, we usually think of jihad in the Middle East and now 
in Europe and in America. And you think of Latin America as Latino, as Spanish, as, you know, some indigenous, you know, um, Indian tribes. But um, <clears throat> I've say, I've read riveting testimony from some people from FDD, our buddies there or elsewhere uh, in the 2012 era <clears throat> when they were investigating the whole Hezbollah connection to the Saudi ambassador, the attempted assassination, that this is this was a long, deep-rooted thing where you basically have a society that's very weak. Even the Catholicism is, and we know this from the Pope, uh, and Jordan, don't 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 let our resident Catholic on board. <laughs> no, I'm saying this. Don't let Joe whack me. But you know, the 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 Pope is it, it's from Latin America. It's very much liberation theology. There's a lot of anti-American sentiment, even without Islamization. And what you had over the years is Hezbollah. It's not just Hezbollah. Iran brought in clerics and taught them and set up mosques and the education system. It's almost autonomous because this is – I mean again, you see the power in America and in Europe. You could imagine where there's less of a state structure in these corners of, of uh, 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 these tri-state areas. Um, you have entire Shia communities that sustain this. The ideology is there. They're also converting because, again, Christianity is very weak in a lot of these places, and they're converting people. They're converting them in the prisons. Um, and that's where the base started. Then they got into the cocaine trade with FARC. It's a, Now, they were mainly shipping it to Europe and West Africa, and that's how they made their money. But you know they're always trying to set up Keep in mind, Hezbollah is messianic. They're not just ruthless, very shrewd, and successful businessmen in the short term. There's a purpose to this in the long term that should send chills down our spine. Now, that's where they met the Zetas and possibly other cartels, where they would come down to Colombia and meet with FARC and get the cocaine, bring it up to Mexico to bring it to U.S. and Canada, while Hezbollah would do their thing in different parts of the country. The, in recent years, it's now clear that they started to merge, where basically – and this is what we're going to try to put some more T's and I's on in the coming days. Um, what do they have to offer each other? So um, Hezbollah offers their global network, the Lebanese-Canadian Bank. We know there's already been a lot of indictments of people, Shiites arrested in America, or La Zetas people arrested working with the, the Lebanese-Canadian Bank. Um, there's been a couple of those cases we chronicled together over the last couple of years. Some predated us. Um, and they offer them that network. They offer them the weapons. They smuggle them weapons, weapons, very high caliber weapons to the Zetas, which is why they're so ruthless. The tactics, the IEDs. Um, and then there's now evidence. What's that town in Mexico that's now growing in oh, Chapa in southern Mexico? Yep. Yeah, that is in not so. So the Zetas have a border area in the north, but they also have other affiliated areas they control in the south. Um, that is in their territory, a growing Shia population. Some are converts from the indigenous population. Some are coming there. Um, some reports say there have been tens of thousands of Lebanese going there with loose immigration policies, just like they go to South America. Wherever you see that, you see a growing so, – so you have the geographical base even without the relationship, but the relationship. Here's what concerns me. What do the Zetas offer Hezbollah? Well, A, they, they share in the cocaine revenue not just to Europe, but now they could bring to North America. And then in return, 
they bring in their immigrants. Here's my hunch, and this part's a supposition. It's a supposition, but the background is for sure true. Part of it is for sure true. Um, but this is why I began focusing on it now and why we're going to continue focusing it. I noticed two observations, Jordan, that really scared me based on my focus on immigration, drug cartels, um, and the drug crisis and the origins of it and the stuff we've uncovered, basically. Number one, there's been a lot of reports. Washington Times has a lot of good articles as well as Secretary Nielsen talking about it, there's been an uptick of Bangladeshis and Syrians. I haven't seen necessarily Lebanese, but Syrians coming through the border. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Where are they coming? They're coming in the Laredo sector. Most of the action has been, you know, the caravan, I wrote about that today, is in the Sinaloa area. That's in Tijuana. That's in the West. Or, um... Tucson, which is in the West, or in the Far East, Rio Grande, which is the Gulf Cartel. Those are both sworn rivals of Los Zetas. Los Zetas actually originally broke off of the Gulf Cartel, and they're sworn enemies of Sinaloa. Um, I'm like, holy smokes. Isn't that the cartel with relationship to Hezbollah? It makes sense. That's where you're going to start seeing the um, the Middle Easterners. If they're going to come, it's going to be through the Zetas territory, um, and that's with Hezbollah. That's observation number one. Observation number two. As you know, they talk about a prescription drug crisis, but really what happened circa 2013 and intensifying in 2015, 2016 has been a heroin fentanyl crisis. That has almost exclusively come from the Sinaloa cartel, which is a rival. They're in the far west. Their trade is heroin. They grow it, the poppy fields there. So they're not really reliant on Hezbollah and FARC and the whole South American thing because cocaine can only be grown in the Andes. A heroin is all grown in, in Mexico, and it's, it's the Sin- Sinaloa cartel. Sinaloa is everything. They're just like – they're the number one. They have all the business in America. I mean they're – that's the heroin crisis there. But I noticed in my research, independent of this entire discussion, from a drug crisis standpoint, I had – Dr. Steve, Stefan Cortez, a liberal, on talking about this. We spoke about this last week. There's a growing trend just the last 18 months of cocaine skyrocketing beyond anything we saw in the 80s, 90s, last decade that we almost eradicated, by the way, in the war on FARC. And there was a major BuzzFeed article three days ago really delving into this, how it's, it's mainly why are they dying from cocaine? Because it's laced with fentanyl. And I said to myself, oh my gosh, you put that together with the border crossings of Middle Easterners, who does the cocaine? That's Zetas mainly, not Sinaloa. Zetas would want to go and and respond to the great market share that Sinaloa has created with heroin, and they're going to power up their cocaine with fentanyl like, like Sinaloa did with heroin. Where do they get it from? The Andes. Who are they hooked in with? Hezbollah. Oh my gosh, you're seeing an increase in cocaine. You're seeing an increase in Middle Easterners coming through Laredo. That means Hezbollah, especially given that Obama shut off any counter Hezbollah operations during this entire drug crisis around the same time as the Iran deal, they are on the run and they're killing our people. And by the way, just one more data point. I want to get your thoughts on this. 
I live in Baltimore, as you well know. Baltimore is a Zetas territory. Baltimore, because of its black population, uh, blacks just culturally, I don't know exactly why, but they're into cocaine more than whites are into heroin. So it, whenever you see a black demographic, you're going to likely see more of a Zetas market share than a um, uh, Sinaloa market share like you have in New England, which is more white. That's kind of just a background into that. And, and, and again, you have to study this to, to understand what's going on. Um, in the last year, cocaine deaths have tripled in Maryland. To me, that tells me Zetas is on the move. Now, again, independent of Hezbollah, this, even without it, it, it would explain this, and they're dangerous enough. But when you mix in the Middle Easterners coming in, to me, if we could prove this more, it brings full circle the drug crisis, the immigration crisis, Iran and Hezbollah directly using the money and the Iran deal to threaten us on our own homeland. And that is foreign policy for you. Yeah, yeah. As, as we discussed in the beginning segment, this all comes back to, um, I think we talked about this offline a little bit, but it comes back to really the, you know, our founders are really smart and particularly James Monroe and his Monroe Doctrine. Um, in the 1820s, they were European powers that were meddling in the Western Hemisphere. And we were concerned that if they got too much of a foothold, um, near our borders that they would present an existential threat to the United States. So the Monroe Doctrine asserted U.S. hegemony over South America, Latin America, North America. And we basically said, you know what, um, I'm sorry that you guys want to want to trade with these people and whatnot, but we need to protect our interests. And that is that. And I think a revitalization of this doctrine when it comes to the threats that we face today would be would be a great idea. We need to really get back to um, talking about what affects directly affects our national security, and we shouldn't be letting Hezbollah and the drug cartels run free, even outside. It might be a controversial take, but I don't think so. Even outside of our borders, um, we need to take a more active role in preventing the human, you know, the human smuggling route before it comes into Texas. And that's why I, you know, we're so baffled when we see stuff that's going on with Afghanistan and Syria. And there's these drug cartels that are coordinating with Islamic terrorist groups, a couple hundred miles off of our borders. And we're not really doing anything about it, because we're too worried about, you know, particular political issues with the DACA kids and, and all that. And we're all caught up in the politics, but we're not getting back to the essential component of protecting the country of what is foreign policy. I mean that, that it's, it's the homeland. And and to me, you know, any, well, Daniel, if we don't go to Yemen, they'll get to us here. I'm like, well, how, what do they have to reach us with? What network, what um, ICBM, what they have an air force that could fly. I mean, what is it? And they, they never answer that question. And yet, I mean, there. Just this week, I saw. Obviously, we have special ops. We have a Green Beret team, um, and I think we'll cover this more next week because we're running out of time. This is important in its own own right. We're being schleppers for Saudi Arabia to go and fight the Houthis while we're also fighting Al Qaeda, which is fighting them. And I'm thinking, we're like, well, Houthis are part of Iran. Uh, so, Daniel, do you want to be tough on Iran? I'm like, you idiots! That, that's the wrong area to fight Iran in. I mean, the Houthis aren't worth worth jack. Jack's 
add ethanol. You know, <laughs> they, they, they're not worth anything. Hezbollah is like, we didn't even scrape the surface of their power through the state actors, through the populations of these countries, and um, and in Mexico now, and 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 with it just and it's worse than what you said it's not just outside they have the operatives here we've arrested a number of them um the zetas people are here ms13 is hooked in with the zetas and by the way i i have people that are telling me ms13 is directly hooked in not just through the zetas but directly with hezbollah because hezbollah has a presence in el salvador so directly at the at the headquarters level that's something i'm going to research more um, and we're, we'll update our listeners as time goes on. But I'm just floored. I mean, by a factor of 10,000, we should have our military involved. We should have the statecraft, the funding, the carrot and sticks that we want to use in Syria. We should be using with these governments. Um, you know, some of them are already like horrible, but some of them are on the fence. And we say, look, we'll help you. We'll give you a little bit of aid. But we say, you guys, if you're in with Hezbollah, we're going to beat the hell out of you. I mean, could you imagine if we use the bully pulpit against these tin pot people? But, but you know, Paraguay, huge problem. Bolivia, huge problem. Paraguay is very, very big base of operation for Hezbollah um, at a governmental level. Venezuela, it started with Chavez um, directly with, with uh, Ahmadinejad uh, in Iran. But it's continuing under um, President Nicolas Maduro, uh, who's just as bad. And th- there's no answers. And it's like... The cocaine and is alone is killing tens of thousands of people. It's giving them billions of dollars. And then we didn't even scrape the surface of how many Hezbollah operatives have gotten in here. Um, here's the thing, Jordan. The only reason why over the last 10 years you have not had suitcase bombs going off from people who crossed our border because they have it. They have them in the country. Is simply because there's ironically they're so successful in the western hemisphere that the only deterrent we actually have is i think they want to bide their time because right now it's a billion dollar industry and they know we don't give a damn about drugs we don't give a damn about immigration we don't give a damn about the cartels and we're not going to do a military operation to go after them if they would go and blatantly have his bella guy come through the border and you know set off a suitcase bomb maybe maybe we'd respond um but uh, and yeah. I think it's, it, it's important to make a distinction because, like, neither of us are calling for randomly sending troops to, you know, take out these drug cartels and, and whatnot um, that are selling drugs in Paraguay and just staying there and do, doing whatever they want to do in foreign lands. Like, we don't really care about that. What we care about is when they when they link up with these terrorist organizations or they're trying to smuggle these deadly drugs into the United States. So we need to wall, uh, the key for our foreign policy should be to wall off the influence of the terrorist groups and the cartels inside of our country. You know, we don't care what goes on in their country. They can, you know, that's a different, entirely different problem. When it hits the United States or when it impacts the United States is when it becomes our problem. And clearly it's impacting the United States. Exactly. We wouldn't want the Iranians to get a foothold in Yemen, would we? Well, would you want them to get a foothold in Mexico? Um, I wouldn't even say would you want them to get a foothold in 
Southern and Central America because they already, I mean, it's not just a foothold. It is, I mean, I've learned the stuff we, we've learned together this week is astounding. And we'll, you know, go over it when we have more time. We're, we're just about out of time. But you're right. I mean, I'm just saying theoretically, if you're going to use the military, which we're using left and right, you should use it by a factor of 10,000 here. But you're right. You don't even have to. It's the money. There, his bull is all on contraband. And this is getting back to um, the Iran deal. It wasn't just a deal. It was an alliance. Obama shut off Operation Cassandra. We know the banks. We know where the money is. Um, this is why we have an agency under the Treasury Department, under the Justice Department. Um, and we're going to report on this and report back in the coming days. Is the Trump administration going to do anything? They officially did restart some sort of task force to deal with Hezbollah in the Western Hemisphere and the counterterrorism, counter-narcotics. Um, but that's the thing. You choke off the funding. And and that it, it it dies, and then uh, they can't offer the Zetas anything, and you know the immigration problem is is less of a threat. Uh, so that that that's it, it, it from me here. Any closing thoughts from you, J- Jordan? Yeah, just again, we're not advocating for you know these Nick, uh, Nixonian policy of torching the poppy fields. We want to go after the funders and facilitators of terrorism and how it affects the United States and. The, the drug cartels are often linked with these groups. So it's really a dual-pronged effort, hopefully moving forward with the Department of Justice to take out these terrorist networks and hold the cartels and ultimately the Mexican government responsible for the actions of what happens inside of their nation. Bingo. Hold them accountable. We don't we don't we won't do it. That's all do a fraction of what we do in the Middle East. Um, I mean, we have a whole counter narcotics thing in, in Afghanistan, which is stupid because you're never going to solve that there. It's just too fractured with just all the reasons that you're not going to solve the Taliban issue. You're not going to solve that either, but we won't deal with it in our own hemisphere. Folks, foreign policy is not foreign. It's domestic. It's homeland security if it's done right, if we have the proper focus. And that's what we're going to work on. Uh, thanks for joining us for another Foreign Policy Friday let us know what you think. You could always email me your insights, dharwitz at crtv.com, at armconservative on Twitter. Jordan, what's your stuff? You can email me at jordan at crtv.com. Best place to reach me. Yeah, we don't want the Shaktel name there. I still don't know how to spell it. <laughs> kind of like, I don't know how to spell sovereignty, even though it's the name of my book. But um, we'll have a lot more next week. Uh, you know, hopefully we can make this a regular series. Um, but we need your support. We're going to need you to support our advertisers. We're getting some new ones on board this month. Uh, have a great weekend, folks. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.